wake up. It's the Sleep Unplugged podcast, episode 70, Sleep and Injury. Do you really want to hurt me? Welcome everyone to the Sleep Unplugged podcast. My name is Chris Winner. I am your host. I am a neurologist and sleep expert and very excited you're here. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you are a veteran of the podcast, welcome back. I really, really appreciate your support. And good to have everybody with us. It's been a fun week. We talked about somniloquy or sleep talking last week. That was a necessary topic and one that affects a lot of people. Today's topic came to me because the NBA season is getting ready to start. I was just out with the Oklahoma City Thunder for the 15th season. I couldn't believe it. Somebody asked me, how many times have you gone out and, and been with the team prior to the start of the season? And I said, I don't know. So I went back and looked and it, this was the 15th season. So I really appreciate the organization for having me. It's always a treat to go out and talk to athletes about sleep and, and get them ready for what is always a, a long and difficult season. The Thunder had a really, really surprising, surprisingly successful season last year. It was interesting. I was talking to one of the members of the organization's sort of executive staff and he made a comment that I thought was really interesting, which was when you think back 15 years ago, when you sat down and addressed the team, and that was a big team. That was you know, what Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and James Harden, Serge Ibaka. This was a Nick Collison, Kevin Ollie. There were so many great players on that team. He said, don't you, do you see a difference? And the answer is absolutely. You know, that group 15 years ago, while certainly wanting to take care of themselves, really didn't have sleep on the radar. Fast forward 15 years, and I've got young players coming to me with whoop data, questions about sleep they've gotten from other podcasts, the internet, TikTok videos. So it's a whole new ball game when it comes to individuals and their sleep. So always a lot of fun being out there with them. But when I came out, they said, hey, we'd love for you, you know, while you're out here to give a talk to the medical staff about sleep as it relates to injury risk. And so I did that and I thought, well, wow, that would be a great topic for the podcast. So I'm going to share with you some of the things that I talked to the club about. And if you're watching the YouTube channel, so we have a YouTube channel, Sleep Unplugged channel, you can see every year for the past 15 years, when I finish up on my luggage, which I have sort of set in a certain place, so I go to pick up my luggage to go catch the plane to come home, they're always so gracious with giving me a whole bunch of Oklahoma City gear, shorts and hoodies and sweatshirts and things like that. And so I thought I'd throw this cool shirt on. I like this black and gray look. Um, it was interesting. I remember the very first time I went out there 15 years ago, they said, what size are you? And I said, I don't know. I'm probably a medium. And they gave me this medium sized Oklahoma city hoodie, which or sweatshirt where the sleeves, when I put it on extended four inches beyond the end of my hand. So they don't say it, but I think that they special order 
tiny person clothing for me so they have something to give me when I come out there and I really appreciate it. So if you listen to the podcast, you know, we always start off with viewer questions or comments. And I've got a great one here from Paige. Paige wrote, while I was sitting in my sauna, I listened to your podcast about menopause. It was bad. It wasn't a major mistake. You're a great physician, but that episode was rough. I know it's not your specialty, but as a consumer, what you were selling was BS. Uh, she didn't write BS. Paige didn't write BS. Uh, you compared HRT to the J&J &J vaccine. You perpetuated the harmful and false narrative that HRT causes cancer. CBT will not resolve the problems with hormone deficiency. You suggested that women should deal with nighttime awakenings with prayer. First and foremost, Paige, I appreciate you listening and, and being supportive. I'm glad you think I'm a great physician because if you thought I was a terrible physician, I cringe to, to think what this would have looked like. So I think we should start off with, yes, this is not my specialty. And as if you listen to the podcast, you know, not only is it not my specialty, but I'm definitely of a generation of doctors that came through the system being taught that HRT was very bad, very dangerous, um, was going to cause clots and cancers and all kinds of terrible things, and we shouldn't do it. And I will preface this by saying there is a great New York Times Daily about HRT. And then there was a follow-up that was a Sunday read. There was a follow-up that was something like uh, menopause is having its moment. And I invite everybody to listen to that because I think it's really important. What she's referring to is episode three of the podcast. This was back in July of 22. I felt so badly about not putting hormone replacement therapy in my book, The Sleep Solution, that I wanted to make it one of the first episodes we did. So a couple of things. Number one, not my specialty. Number two, I compared a hormone replacement therapy to the J&J &J vaccine as well as birth control pills in the episode, because I wanted people to understand something about relative risk. And when you, if you're concerned about the relative risk of clotting with HRT, we really shouldn't be terribly concerned about J&J &J because it's significantly less clotting. Yet we made a huge deal about the J&J &J vaccine. But when you look at oral birth control pills, that's a big number when it when it comes to incidence of clotting. We, and nobody ever cares about that. We put our young girls on birth control pill all the time for hormone you know, regulation, acne, contraception. And I'm, I'm sure we talk about clotting, but it's not at the same level that we did. So nobody's getting rid of the birth control pill because of clotting. I'm not sure why we scrapped HRT because of clotting, because it was such a significantly smaller risk. And I detail that in the podcast. And then the J&J &J was infinitely smaller than that, you know, significant, I should say significantly smaller, yet we made a huge deal. So it's it just kind of where, depending on what we're talking about, we seem to selectively choose what we're making a big deal about clotting or not. You perpetuated the harmful and false narrative that HRT causes cancer. I'm not sure that it's a false narrative. Again, if you listen to that daily there is an increased risk of cancer. And I believe it, in 2002, when they did the big population study, it was quoted as being something like a 26% increase in cancer risk. But when you actually looked at the numbers, it was like the risk went from 2.2 to 2.9. Again, I'm, I'm remembering this. Sorry, I should have done my homework before the episode. 
So a 2.2% risk of cancer, all comers, rises to 2.9 if you're on HRT. I think a lot of people would take that risk. And it was something like only seen after five years or more of use and only in individuals, I think over the age of 50. And again, God, I think I might be, I'm, I'll put all this, you know, just go back and listen to that daily podcast or I'll put it on a, a post on Twitter or something like that. So again, I don't think talking about a false, increasing cancer is a false narrative. It's the way we interpret it and the nuance of it that I think was false. And even if it is an increased risk in cancer, it might be prudent to make that a woman's decision to make. Um, here's a painkiller that might cause an increased risk of heart attack. So with it, your, in, your risk of heart attack goes up by 1%. Without it, you live in pain every day. I think that's the choice of an individual to make. And, um, and then the finally, she said, you suggested that women deal with it based upon prayer. No, what I was saying was there's a lot of CBT is going to help a lot of people with a lot of problems with, with insomnia, H, uh, menopause included. There may be better treatments for menopause like HRT, but if somebody's saying, look, I'm going through menopause and I wake up sometime in the middle of the night, I'm tr I have trouble getting back to sleep. What I'm saying is, regardless of the reason of that, we need to create strategies for, okay, if you wake up, what are you going to do? Now, HRT may solve the problem or relaxing about the situation, meditating, praying, CBTI, all those things have their place. But no, CBTI is not going to treat the signs and problems that come along with menopause. And I really wasn't saying that. And hopefully, Paige, um, you understand me maybe a little bit better now. Uh, so we've gone a little bit longer with that than I wanted to, but it was a great comment and I wanted to put on there to prove to people that, hey, I only I don't just put the positives on here. We talk about the negatives too. If you want to get in touch with the show, social media, DR Chris Winter Twitter, DR Chris Winter Instagram, DR Chris Winter TikTok. You can find DME, whatever questions you have. Love to talk about it, good or bad. Um, real quickly, the song title, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? was Culture Club Smash. I say debut hit. It wasn't their debut single. They had a couple singles before then that sort of didn't go anywhere, but it was the debut single off of their massive 1982 album, Kissing to be Clever. I love this album growing up. I think it's one of the best produced albums. That song is as clear as a bell. And I've always been a huge fan of Boy George's vocal it reached number one all across the world, except for the United States, where it, it it peaked at number two. The reason for it was it was kept out of the number one spot because of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. I mean, there was so much big music coming out at that time. Um, I was watching that video again prior to this podcast, and Boy George is wearing a shirt at one point with Hebrew writing on it that says Tarbat Aguda which basically is translated into culture association, which was a mis, it was actually a mistranslation and grammatically incorrect. And um, anyway, just thought it was ironic that he was wearing that shirt with um, Hebrew writing on it. And certainly just thinking about all the, the terrible suffering that's going on in the, the Middle East right now. And just, my thoughts and and prayers and and positive wishes go out to everyone who's suffering. So let's talk about sleep and athletic performance. 
I'm sorry, sleep and injury. We talked about sleep and athletic performance earlier in the podcast. That was episode 12. So we're kind of revisiting sort of an athletic uh, type of an episode, but really this applies to everyone. It's basically, hey, look, we always talk about cardiovascular risk. And, And I get interviewed all the time by media. Hey, Chris, what are the downsides of not getting enough sleep? And I'll admit, this is not something that typically talk about outside of car accidents, you know, that kind of injury, falling asleep at the wheel. But there's a lot of evidence that really links inadequate and poor quality sleep to injury risk all comers. And obviously, if you're running a sports organization like the OKC Thunder, Thunder Up, that that matters to you. You've invested a lot of time and energy and money in athletes. You want to compete. You want to succeed and win. And to do that, everybody has to be healthy. And we're going to hope everybody on the team stays nice and healthy this season. So I'm going to read to you a, a, a quotation from Kevin Hong from uh, an article in 2021 called Sleep and Injury Risk. And he wrote, sleep has been found to have wide ranging effects on sports performance and overall well-being. Recent research has found evidence relating chronic suboptimal sleep with the risk of musculoskeletal pain and sports injury. And Pain is interesting. We've talked about that before, that deficiencies or things that interfere with REM sleep can show uh, individuals having more pain. There was research when you selectively interrupted REM sleep, individuals just simply felt more pain. I think we've talked about that before. And it's interesting when we think about sleep and injury, I used to work for the Pittsburgh Pirates and we would assess their players in terms of their sleep. And the club had access to that information, sort of the grading, a great sleeper, this person has sleep deficiencies. And and I never did anything with the research. At the same time, we also set up a place for the Pittsburgh Pirates to sleep, like a napping room. And it was interesting, a couple of years after I started working with them, I was talking to them and they said, you know, we've actually crunched the numbers and we feel that our players who sleep better and utilize the napping room, they called it the regeneration room, tended to not only recover from injury faster, which makes sense to me, but they actually get injured fewer times. There's less problem with injury in that group of players than the players that we would consider poorer sleepers. And again, that was not my research. I guess research, probably not the right word for it. That was their own data crunching that they found that. And other teams have sort of said similar things to me over the years. So why would that be? So let's talk about sleep and injury mechanisms. You know, So what is it about sleep that might be lending itself to injury? And I think that you could break these things down into three groups, circadian factors, so timing factors, sleep duration, which we talk a lot about on this show, what's the, you know, getting suboptimal or maybe supraoptimal sleep could create injury risk. And then there's the quality of the sleep you're getting. You know, what's that rating? Is there, are there things that are interfering with the quality of your sleep that create problems? So when we think about circadian functioning, there was a study in 2021, it was called, how does sleep help recover from exercise induced muscle injuries? And in that, they basically said, look, sleep has a direct interaction with the circadian system, including and influencing hormone and immune system function and responsiveness. 
So what does that mean? What it means is that when we sleep on a regular schedule, that the normal cascade of hormone and immune system functioning is much more able to operate optimally than if we're sleeping at unusual times. And we've talked about circadian factors before on the show with the sort of pinnacle of that being the World Health Organization saying, hey, shift work disorder, we're going to consider a class 2A carcinogen, particularly I think in breast and prostate cancer, meaning that the disruption of sleep timing seems to influence the immune system in ways that make it less able to deal with the emergence of cancerous cells. Like you're more likely to develop cancer. Now you could probably really pick that apart. Well, maybe the shift worker is eating and not eating as well or exercising less. The, the shift worker I think is going to get six hours less sleep per week than the normal individual. But I think smart people smarter than I am are saying, no, no, no. If you can control for those things, you would still see that just influencing timing of sleep is going to have a negative influence on all of those factors. Sleep duration, we've talked about before on the show, what's the optimal amount of sleep an individual should get. We've talked about that um, in terms of the J curve. And what I mean by that is that when you look at sleep plotted out with health consequences in general, seven hours seems to be the magic spot that as you go below seven hours in terms of sleep duration, you tend to see more health-related consequences. And as you go above seven or eight hours, the same thing starts to happen. So the sweet spot is seven hours. And I'm going to touch upon a study that basically said, yes, if you're getting fewer than seven hours of sleep for a period of time, your injury risk does get higher. And, and finally, we'll talk about sleep Oh, real quickly. And, and just putting that into an athletic framework. The National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, did a survey of collegiate athletes. And this came out of a meeting that a bunch of us had at the NCAA about trying to get a, a sense of you know, what was going on with uh, collegiate athletes and how we could best support their sleep. So this study came out in 2019. It was Mental Health and Elite Athletes International Olympic Committee Consensus Statement um, basically came out and said, you know, 50% of collegiate athletes are probably getting less than seven hours of sleep per night while they're in season. I'm not sure that you could apply that to professional athletes, but I'm sure a lot of them, you know, younger athletes do as well too. So when you think about injury risk within an athletic population, elite collegiate athletes, we've got half of them probably getting less than seven hours of sleep. And we're going to circle back to why that's important. Finally, sleep quality, sleep uh, quality, you know, anything that's disrupting sleep quality, sleep apnea, restless leg, narcolepsy, any of those things are going to put an individual at risk for excessive sleepiness, fatigue, and the things that could eventually lend themselves to some sort of athletic injury. So let's talk about immune system functioning, because as we disrupt the circadian rhythm, as we create deficiencies in sleep duration, and as we look at items, conditions, diagnoses that would affect sleep quality, 
what we're really talking about is a direct impact on immune system functioning. And there's been several studies looking at this. There was a study called Sleep and Immune Function. This was back in 2012. And basically in that paper, it said sleep duration has a direct relationship to local IGF, that's insulin-like growth factors, and inflammatory responses. So basically what they're saying is quality, quantity, nature, timing of our sleep directly impacts our production of these IGF factors and the regulation of our inflammatory response. And just IGF, insulin growth, insulin, insulin-like growth factors are associated with growth hormone and kind of create this sort of axis of immune system functioning that has a direct implication, not only on diabetes and cancer risk, but on aging in general. So it's really important that those are functioning well for us to be able to have a properly functioning immune system and inflammatory response. And it's interesting that we're, we're talking about inflammation. It's interesting that Paige was sitting in her sauna when she wrote uh, the show about her displeasure with the menopause episode, because next week we're going to talk about extreme temperatures, being in a sauna or being in a cold tub and how they influence sleep. And you really can't have that conversation without talking about the immune system functioning. So anyway, so sleep and inflammatory response, inadequate sleep has been shown to increase pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are sort of like signaling proteins that typically peak during early nocturnal sleep. And then as the night goes on, they diminish. Inadequate sleep, dysfunctional sleep also decreases circulating numbers of immune cells with an immediate uh, effect on cells like cytotoxic natural killer cells. These are lymphatic cells that sort of float around our body. They make up, I think about 20% of our lymphatic uh, sort of system that's, that's, that's part of our immune system. And they're responsible for attacking virus cells and anything that's intracellular that could be considered pathogenic by our body. Inadequate sleep is also affecting anti-inflammatory cytokine activity, which typically peaks during wakefulness. So essentially what's going on is if you're getting inadequate sleep or dysfunctional sleep, you're going to increase this very inflammatory state as well as give it an inadequate time to sort of diminish, which happens as the night goes on. So I, I always think about it as sort of stoking a stove and getting it nice and hot but then not letting it cool down or cleaning the stove at the end. So it's probably a terrible analogy. So bottom line is inadequate sleep is creating this very pro-inflammatory environment within our body. And this role is particularly associated with slow wave sleep. And we've talked about the relationship between slow wave sleep and growth hormone. Now we're talking about growth hormone being related to IGF and these cytokines that are circulating. It's all part of building and increasing muscle mass, strengthening our bones, fortifying our immune system, bolstering our ability to recover from injury. And as we'll talk about in a minute, maybe prevent it altogether. So that slow wave sleep and the accompanying inflammatory endocrinological processes that are happening is really a hallmark 
of sleep, particularly something where you see sort of changes in prolactin levels, lowering of cortisol and lowering of catecholamine concentrations. And this we talked about in, I believe it was the sleep and longevity episode, which is, was, hey, if we could do something that could lower cortisol and could lower catecholamine concentrations, which tend to go up when we get inadequate sleep, we could essentially treat inadequate sleep and potentially reduce the dangers that go along with it. So we're kind of revisiting topics that we've talked about before. The bottom line with all of this is if you're not getting enough sleep or your sleep is problematic, you are creating an inflammatory response within your body and you're impairing your body's immune system functioning is essentially how we're talking about that. So how does that play into injury risk? Well, let's think about inadequate sleep and dysfunctional sleep and what parts of the brain it's going to selectively influence. And one part of the brain that it really influences our prefrontal cortex. It's probably the most susceptible region of the body to inadequate sleep. So when you actually look at the prefrontal cortex, what's happening there? What's well, a lot of executive functioning? It's planning out of movements. If you're going to go, if you're going to run down the court, catch a pass, jump up, dunk the ball, land safely, and continue to play, there's a lot of prefrontal planning that goes along with that complex array of movements. And so when you look at inadequate sleep, it's probably selectively impairing that part of our brain so that we're not able to do that as well as we would like. There's also a really famous study by Mogan um, in 1991 that was really elegantly demonstrated that sleep restriction created deficiencies in physical performance. So you had a higher physiological demand, athletes were exhausted faster. So just simply running on a treadmill, your capacity to do something aerobic like that was actually diminished with inadequate sleep. So let's put these things together here a little bit. You've got an individual who's making, whose planning ability is not as good. We know individuals who are inadequately slept are inherently more uh, risk uh, tolerant. They're going to take more risks. They don't pick up on cues of danger as well. Memory, concentration, focus is lapsing. You're going to make three times more attention errors. Think of the attention that has to be present for you to catch the little rubber ball, slam it through the hoop, avoid injury, land safely on your ankles when you're seven feet tall. A lot of, of attention and concentration goes into it. So all of those things are being impaired. So what the, the, the algorithm that Kevin Wong showed in his sleep and injury risk in 2021 was that sleeping fewer than seven hours per night over the course of two weeks, 14 days, you had a 1.7 time increase in injury risk versus the individual that didn't, which is not insignificant when there's a lot of, of money on the line. So that's when you're looking at athletes, they looked at just ordinary Korean adults in a 2014 study. So seven hours was the reference in that study and everything was an adjusted odds ratio with that. And so when you looked at individuals who are sleeping less than four hours a day, their risk of injury overall was 1.53 
um, for five hours or from five to six hours, it was 1.28 odds ratio of injury. Six hours to eight hours was 1.11. And then at eight hours, it was 0.98. So the odds ratio now is dropped below one. 1.12 for nine hours and 1.48 for anything 10 or above. So eight and nine hours were not statistically significant, but for everything else it was. So if you were sleeping more than 10 hours, your risk of injury was about 1.5. That was the odds ratio. So let's think about that. What does that mean? So a 1.5 odds ratio means you're 1.5 times greater odds of getting injured then if you're sleeping eight hours and your odds ratio is essentially one. So it's essentially a 50% increase in injury risk, the 1.5 versus the one. So when you're looking at less than four hours, that was 1.53. If you're looking at greater than 10, 1.48. So once again, we kind of see that J curve, right? So it's not just athletes. Although athletes seem to be a little higher, although that parameter was a little bit different in terms of only being 14 days, you know, but they're doing things that maybe are inherently more risky than the average um, Korean adult. Um, kids were the same way. There was a study done in 2014 called Sleep Duration and Injury Related Risk Behaviors Among High School Students in the United States from 2007 to 2013. They were looking at things like vehicle crashes, sports injuries, occupational injuries, and the CDC basically analyzed data from about 50,000 high school students, grades 9 through 12. And they were looking at you know, dates 2007 to 2013. So the likelihood of all of those behaviors being inherently more risky was absolutely higher for students who reported getting seven hours or fewer per night on an average school night. So we have athletes, we have typical adults, we have high school students, all showing an increased likelihood of more injury, getting seven hours of sleep or fewer or, or even lower. So essentially, um, it was a... There's another, I'll spotlight one more study. Sleep problems and injury risk among juveniles, a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies. This was from 2017. Now I'll read to you from this study. The multivariate adjusted odds ratio and associated 95% confidence intervals were extracted and pooled using random effects models. A total of 10 observational studies involving 73,418 participants were identified. The meta-analysis findings suggest that juveniles with sleep problems so we're talking about sleep dysfunction, um, typically held a 1.64 times higher risk of injury than juveniles without. So now the odds ratio 1.64. So we're looking at odds ratios of somewhere between 1.5 to 1.7 for any population that's sleeping poorly in terms of an increased injury risk. And I love to pull this out when I talk to young students. You know, hey, sleep well. Pay attention to your sleep. You'll get good grades. You'll get into a better school. You'll you'll average the average individual sleeping better will make more money. I mean, it's all kinds of great, but the one that'll get them is hey, you're less likely to get injured, so you can play your sport and continue your dream of being the next, you know, amazing basketball player to be drafted by the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I'm going to mention one more specific injury risk that's written about a lot. 
and that it, and if you want to look up uh, Jaffe wrote a lot of really good articles about this uh, which is athletic injury and, and concussion but sleep predicts concussion risk pretty well and when you look at incident concussions so people get their you know their bells rung which of those individuals go on to have problems after the concussion versus people who seem to recover a little bit easier the individuals with clinically significant moderate to severe insomnia that was a big predictor of people who were going to struggle if they had a concussion. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing as well, too. So what do we do about it? How do we prevent these types of things? What was the the tips or the strategies I gave the thunder? They were really simple, and they're simple for you, too. Number one, we have to work to ensure that we're getting an adequate sleep opportunity. And that might be easier for the school teacher who works nine to five or the, the school nurse or the school principal or the whatever. Those, those jobs tend to be a little bit more structured in terms of the timing. It's not, you know, late night, you know, kind of things or call or whatnot. So when you're looking at a basketball team, though, that becomes problematic because of all the travel. So we want to work to ensure adequate sleep opportunity. Number two, we want to actively be screening for and looking for individuals with dysfunctional sleep as well as insomnia. So if you're a clinical provider of care, we want to make sure that you're looking out doing Epworth sleeping scales, doing surveys, asking your patients, how are you sleeping? And if you're an individual who's struggling with your sleep, don't wait for your doctor to ask the question. If you feel like your sleep is problematic, talk about it because if you have dysfunctional sleep or you're getting inadequate sleep for whatever reason, you're putting yourself at risk for a higher injury. And finally, we want to schedule our lives with an eye on sleep. And this is a lot of the work that I do for the Thunder is, you know, when do we travel? When do we do these types of things? How can we minimize a tip, a difficult travel situation in terms of keeping our players healthy? Uh, in fact, some baseball teams I'm working with are going to go to Korea next year to play two regular season games. And so we're working really hard to make sure those clubs can get their athletes over to Korea, have a great time, compete. And, and and do really well on the ball field and then come back to the United States and get back to their homes on the West Coast and not have their players get sick or injured. And having good sleep is not only important for them, but it's important for you. So if you want to find out more information about sleep and injury and athletic performance, there's a great paper I want to direct you to. It's called Sleep and Athletic Performance Impacts on Physical Performance, Mental Performance, Injury Risk, and recovery and mental health. It was from 2020 by my good buddies, Michael Granier, and you can find him on Twitter, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-G-R-A-N-D-N-E-R, and Dr. Jonathan Charest. He's at J-O-C-H-A-R-E-S-T number one on Twitter. So look them up, give them a follow, read the paper. And if you have any questions, concerns, criticisms, give me a give me a buzz on my Twitter or my Instagram. It's drchriswinner. Love to hear what your thoughts are about this episode what you're doing to stay injury-free and keep your sleep at the highest of quality. If you have uh, a, a notion to watch our videos, you can find us on the YouTube channel, the Sleep Unplugged YouTube channel. 
My books are The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep's Broken and How to Fix It, as well as The Rested Child, Why You're Tired, Wired, or Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help. We will put the Culture Club and maybe the Violent Femmes version of Do You Want to Hurt Me on the Sleep Unplugged Spotify Playlist Volume 2. And until next week, everyone, sleep well.